Yo, what's up everyone? Welcome to Critical Thinking. This episode is actually the part two of the series we're doing on H1407, the HackerOne Live Hacking Event. So if you haven't seen part one, that would be episode number three, then go ahead and check that out now. I'm not going to tie you up too long here in the intro, but as always, we'd always appreciate a review on your podcast app of choice. And we hope you enjoy this awesome episode with the one and only Space Raccoon as our guest. Enjoy. We got a good good surprise for you today. We've got our first guest on Critical Thinking, Mr. Eugene Lim, Space Raccoon. Cue the clapping sounds. <laughs> Welcome to the show, man. <laughs> hey, thanks, Justin. We just got through H1407 live hacking event with HackerOne. The target has been released now, so shout out to Epic Games for an awesome live hacking event. Mr. Lim here, Space Raccoon, took second place in that competition. To yours truly, might I say. <laughs> it was a close um, one. So, Not really. It was. <laughs> I like it. It was, man. So I wanted to just have you on to kind of chat about, you know, post-event stuff, lessons learned and that sort of thing. So, well, first, I guess for those people who, for those crazy people out there that don't know who Mr. Space Raccoon is, why don't you give us a little intro, Eugene? Cool. Yeah. So I go by Space Raccoon on HackerOne and it's kind of like my hacker handle in a bunch of places. And I kind of really started in debug boundary space in cybersecurity around like 2019, got my start there, got into AppSec, and then, you know, I think got into a bunch of events along the way. So I think my first one was in the Toronto event. I can't mm. recall, no, Vancouver. Yeah, I can't recall what, what that was, but then got my MVH at the LA event, the next one after that. And since then, you know, I've been to a bunch of like life hacking events. Uh, I do continue to do bug bounty programs regularly as a hobby, but in my job, uh, I work a lot in AppSec and I do some DevSecOps stuff, you know, because we all got to do something. But really, I think my, my main passion is really hacking, bug hunting. And more recently, I've started to do a bit more vulnerability research in nice. binary exploitation and stuff like that. So we can talk about that later and how that came into this event. Nice. Cool. Yeah. I actually wanted to, to ask like what you were doing before you started doing like security stuff. Like what was actually like the, the catalyst that brought you into it? Yeah. I think like a bunch of people, I kind of got into security coming from a developer kind of perspective. So I did computer science in my university, but in order to like kind of just get a freelance jobs, I did web development stuff that really got me into thinking about building systems and how it worked behind the scenes. But then my country, Singapore, actually the government ran a bug bounty program and they invited the local community. So that was my first exposure to bug bounties. And when I got my first try, I was hooked. I mean, I didn't get a bounty, but it was just so much fun finding bugs, hacking. And so I really prefer that a lot more to web development. And that's where I decided to make the shift. Nice, man. Yeah, that's a great story. I remember, I think we talked about this on a different episode, or maybe yeah. I was just chatting with somebody else. But I remember first when I saw you started to come on the scene, and me and some of the other guys at the live hacking events were actually like, man, have you seen this like Space Raccoon guy? He's got like <laughs> seven signal and like 25 impact or something crazy like that. And, uh, and so I was always, you know, from that 
point on, I was hoping you would show up at the live hacking events and then lo and behold, you did. So that's a really cool, you know, rise to success there. And I think we've talked about my backstory before, but I was the plus one to a plus one essentially for my first live hacking event. And then I kind of got into the community from there, but people like Joel and Space Raccoon kind of earned their way in from from scratch, from just hacking stuff and getting invited. So that's really, I really respect that about y'all. Hey, Dom, play your, your skills there. Because yeah, <laughs> I, I think it really goes to show, like you see it in like a lot of the like really like impressive hackers who just like come out of nowhere where like they do have like this sort of like innate skill where like they definitely like yeah. see it a little bit different than everybody else. And like they, they're already, their mindset is sort of like geared towards that. And like, you don't have to have any like specific background, right? It's just like, yeah. just you know, I always say hacking is a mindset, right? It's like, it's the same as everybody else. You just have to sort of like reframe how you're thinking about it, right? Like mm -hmm. how would an attacker like go about the same situation? Yeah. Like how can you take something that already exists and use it in a way that's not intended, right? And like some people just like go into it, like already sort of like having, you know, some way of like thinking about that in like a really, you know, different perspective than a lot of other people have. And they're just like really adept towards it. And like, it's the opportunities like, you know, Singapore government or like, you know, other large organizations who are like, you know, doing stuff like open bug bounty programs that like make it possible for new talent to come in, identify, oh, I have this really cool skill. I really like doing this thing. You know, this is a lot of fun. Let me just like pursue this. Right. And I, I think that's really awesome. Yeah, man, for sure. Absolutely. And actually that makes me wonder, you know, Space Raccoon for a lot of us, for example, I had sort of a mentor, Tommy DeVos kind of introduced me into bug bounty and helped me get a grip on the sort of hacker mentality. What was it like for you developing the the hacker mentality or the, you know, attacker perspective coming from a development background? Was that something that, that took a while for you to, to develop or do you think you caught onto that pretty quickly? Yeah, that's interesting because I like to kind of recall my like training arc after that first bug bounty program <laughs> I did with the Singapore government. So as I mentioned, I didn't, I got one duplicate, but I didn't actually get any bounties. And that was when I was like, okay, if I am interested and I had fun with this, you know, I got to start training up. So I, back then, HackerOne, they still do. They had this uh, Hacker 101 CTF uh, community. Mm. Uh, mm. But back then, it was way, way smaller. It was like a Discord with like 100 plus people at best. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I just met such awesome people in there. There was Nemesis. There was like uh, DC. Mm. Just so many great mentors. And, and of course, this was where I got into like just chatting with people, trying to solve the CTFs. They would kind of sometimes they'll give me hints, um, but not that obvious hints. So, you know, I think... Some people say that CTFs aren't that useful for bug bounty hunting, which is true in many ways. But I think the Hacker 101 CTF, that community especially, was because it's really geared towards specific web vulnerabilities. Mm. That was mm. really useful for me. So that was kind of where I think I got a lot of this training, free training, especially back then. And, and nowadays, there's so much more free stuff out there. But I'm glad there's just all this development. Yeah, that I mean, I'll echo that as well. Like a lot of my initial security, like intro was like CTF, super CTF related. I just found it super interesting, like the challenge aspect of it, where mm -hmm. like you have this problem, you know, like it's solvable somehow, right? Because it's been proposed as like a problem that you can solve that you earn points for, right? So somehow this is solvable. You just have to like figure out the way. And that's sort of like, you know, just like, keep trying different things, try and understand how this works, try and identify like what's going wrong here, like something must be going wrong. I think it also trains you sort of for bug bounty because you don't always know something's going wrong, right? But it, but you have to like look at a system as if something's going wrong, right? And you need to like constantly keep poking and prodding and seeing like, is that something wrong? Is that something wrong? Could this be something wrong? Let me try, you know, XYZ. Yeah. Let me try this other yeah. thing that I've seen before. Maybe even something I've tried it 
in a CTF before, right? Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. that like really is a good way to just like a free open, like, again, you know that there's a solution, right? So like, you just have to like, it's a really good like training ground, right? To like try and just like build up those skills. Well, I think it also, I mean, this is coming from the perspective of someone who hasn't done a lot of CTFs, but I, I would imagine it also sort of gives you a little bit of breadth of knowledge that you kind of need for these sort of things too, because in this scenario, you do get to dive deep and you know there's a solution. So you're motivated to continue learning and continue trying different solutions. But then when you find, get into the, the bug bounty world and you're like looking at an actual problem, a lot of the pieces of it kind of pop in your brain. And then I've heard some people that are used to CTFs being like super tricky. They get in there and they're like, oh yeah, I can just do this. Wait, really? Does it just pop? Is this the bug? You know? <laughs> and so I definitely think there's definitely some value there. And I, I definitely missed out on that when I was, and I did like Metasploitable and stuff like that, but I didn't do so much of that when I was doing web bones before I started Bug Bounty. Yeah. And I think one of the awesome things is that like, this might be, a little, I'm not hundred percent sure about this, but I feel like there's more CTF write-ups than there are Bug Bounty write-ups, right? So like, you'll see that a lot of the times CTF challenges are based on other CTF challenges, or they're like, you know, kind of similar to ones that have been released before, or they'll like play on some CVE that just came out or whatever, right? Like usually it's like fairly topical and it's also like something that is like semi-known because yeah. if it's something like completely like out of the box, like totally new technique, it's really hard to solve, right? So, it is, yeah. you know, it's not as satisfying for the creator. It's not as satisfying for participants. So that can be really helpful if you're like trying to solve yeah. something and you are identifying some of those just little tiny signals. Yeah. Like, that looks weird. That looks weird. You can start to do some Googling. And a lot of the times you'll just find somebody who's done a really in-depth write-up of like a previous CTF, yeah. similar type of problem. They explain like how they exploited it, why it happens, like all the kind of background behind it. And that's a really good insight for learning those like fundamentals like you talked about. Like, you know, what is an XSS? What is like a, an HTTP request? Like, mm -hmm. how do I look at an HTTP request from the browser? And all those types of things that are just like things that we take for granted nowadays that, hey. you know, those are really good ways to just like train those beginner skills. Yeah. And now Eugene, you, you switched, switched to the opposite side of this, right? You have created some, some CTF challenges for your, your government projects, right? Yeah. So a couple of these like CTFs that are done in the past year or so, I, I think one thing I've tried to do with these CTF challenges is kind of like what Joel said is, you know, try something new, right? Build something new. It's kind of tricky doing that in CTF where you're trying to drop a zero day. I know there are CTFs specifically that have zero days and the point is to find zero days. It doesn't look as good if I'm dropping a zero day for a CTF. Right, right. <laughs> but try to do something similar to that basically, right? And one of them was basically like almost vulnerability, but it just needed a little extra uh, modification to make it vulnerable. And that's what I did. Mm, mm. And so it kind of gave people an extra twist. So I heard like some people were stuck on that challenge for like weeks, like more than a week, Dude. basically. I'm not saying that that's the goal of a CTF, <laughs> but definitely something at least told me that I was building something interesting and something new, right? Because it's true that like for a lot of CTFs, after a while, you start seeing the same CTF challenge. You kind of see it and it's like, oh, I know exactly like what this is trying to do. Um, mm -hmm. And when you find a CTF challenge that is both difficult, but also like teachable, like it teaches you something, that's when you think it's like, okay, this is a really good challenge. And, and that's what I wanted to build. So it's really, really interesting way and definitely recommend people to try building a CTF nice. challenge. That's cool, man. So, I mean, I see you smiling nefariously a little bit here when you said that it, some people were stuck on it for two weeks. What is that balance between like, you want people to solve it, but you don't want people to solve it? I mean, did you, do you feel like you nailed that one there, getting people stuff for a couple of weeks and then, and then finally, you know, having some people that solved it or? Yeah. So I think the main thing was that after the, the CTF was over, I, I, you know, I decided to ask a couple of people, like, how was it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and to them, you're like, oh yeah, it was solvable, right? 
and, and we did like drop like three hints along the way until finally yeah. someone solved it. So yeah, there's a bit of like evil devil on my shoulder being like, hey, hey, don't, don't <laughs> give them a hint, you know. But at the end of the day, I think as a CTF challenge creator, you want people to solve your challenges. You want people to learn something. Yeah. You don't just want to like frustrate and make people really angry. And the main thing about when crafting these challenges, it doesn't have to be guessy, right? I think that's one of the biggest factors in CTF challenges. They hate it when challenge feels like you have to guess to solve the problem, which I think is kind mm -hmm. of a little different from how you do with Bug Bounty, because actually in Bug Bounty, there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of guessing involved yeah. sometimes. Yeah, there is. And so I think when we're discussing the differences between CTFs and Bug Bounty, I think that's one thing that stands out to me. Yeah, man, it always, it always like blows my mind whenever I like pick a random endpoint, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and try to check that endpoint for a vulnerability. And like the vulnerability pops and then I'm like, oh gosh, you know, there's going to be vulns everywhere. And I go through the whole, all the other endpoints and then they like don't pop at all. And then you're just like, man, what if I had just like started at a different spot? I would not have found that original vuln. And I'm just like, this is just such a blessing. Yeah, so just try like, not to think about whether or not that word's in your word list. Yeah, dude, <laughs> seriously. And it's like, man, there is a good bit of luck to it. But also, you know, I remember listening to a show and tell by Ron Chan. The man, the myth, the legend. Where is the guy? And yeah, dude, what a guy. Dude, I don't know. He, he vanished into the hacker, hacker verse. Yeah. yeah. And I, in this show and tell, he said, one of the things that cost me a lot of time and makes me not a good hacker sometimes, but also makes me a really good hacker sometimes, is that he is extremely diligent with testing every single... In the show and tell that he was talking about, he there was like six values for like an IDOR or something like that. And he tried, you know, the first five didn't work. And then the sixth one did something really bad. And, you know, me and a couple other people had tested that very endpoint for the exact same bug and just tried the first couple values and then didn't try the last one. And we didn't find the bug. And it was like, you know, five figure bug. And so I, from that moment, I took, you know, a moment of like, okay, I got to sit down. I got to be more diligent. I got to be channel my inner Ranchan here. And, you know, kind of go all the endpoints like that. So there's definitely some some value to that. Yeah. So I was curious, has writing more CTF, like as you've written more and more CTF challenges, has it changed your perspective and your approach to bug bounty specifically? Like, do you now hunt differently based on the challenges that you've written? Or, or would you say it's sort of about the same compared to like, just like being a CTF solver, right? Yeah. So I think, I think when you're writing web CTF challenge, you know, that you kind of two ways you can go about it. One is like you kind of have an exotic way of doing what was common bug class. So like SQL injection, but you have it like, I don't know, in a wrapper and like some kind of protocol buff or something. Or the other way is, you know, you, you try to go a bit more novel, you research like a new framework, you research a new vulnerability that just came out. Um, and I think the research part is what really kind of um, bled into my bug bounty hunting, right? Because I think you probably noticed that these days you, you do a bunch of hackers who are getting more into the vulnerability research space and there's a lot of overlap but I think the biggest difference is that with vulnerability research, you kind of like do some code review, you have some insight into what's going on behind the scenes, and then you try to get the zero day and then you, I don't know, you, you spray that everywhere, right? So so really that research part, practicing those skills was the part that got into my bug bounty uh, process a bit more, especially at this event, I think. Mm. So I think just owning skills that you typically would not do in web pen testing was the stuff mm. that was most useful for me. Nice, dude. Yeah, that's definitely a big one for this event. There's a lot of scopes that weren't traditional you know, web assets. And so, okay, getting back to the, getting back to the post event talk, I have one question that I, you know, have done at the bottom of my list, Eugene, but actually yeah. I'm going to bump it right up to the top. I, I got to know, man, how much time did you spend on this event? Did you take days off of work for this or are you working in your nights and weekends? 
Yeah, so definitely still nights and weekends. I know like people are just not like convinced about that, but honestly for me, yeah, it's really, really, uh, it was a practice of discipline. It was an exercise in discipline and I've been writing a blog post at the same time. And so it was really just me like, you know, okay, it's out of work, time to spend this couple hours hacking. And then I'll be like, oh, this Saturday is free. Oh no, I'm going out this Saturday. So, so really, I think, so I did feel the pressure actually, because, you know, you kind of wish you had more time, but you don't, right? Mm. And you can't really just trade things off. The last time I took up time off to work on a bug bounty event was really for Vegas because, you know, it's the big one, right? So you want to yeah, put in yeah, for as sure. much as you can. So I was still pretty happy to this result, especially because I think I was collaborating. So I think that's yeah. helpful when you kind of have these blocks of time because you have the time off and then, you know, someone in your team was like, hey, there's something interesting or I put that in a chat. And then when you yeah. were back on, you were like, okay, all this like initial research has been done. So now yeah. I can dive in, right? And I think for those wow. members of the team who are kind of full-time, they can kind of pick up of the more, I would say, I think more of the, the stuff that other people typically find and you yourself can focus on the deeper kind of vulnerabilities. So that, that was a good nice. like arrangement, I think, for me. Nice, dude. That's good to hear. And I know I know collabing could be sort of a difficult environment sometimes. We've talked yeah. about that in the past and, and stuff like that. But it sounds like you guys pulled it off pretty well this past event. So that's really good to hear. You know what's not good to hear, though, what? is the fact that you spent probably less than half <laughs> the amount of time that I spent on this event. And no. <laughs> like, okay, let me just set the scene for you, Eugene. Okay? okay. So, you know, I come into this podcast being like, you heard herpty derp. I got, you know, first, second place to my first place. And now I feel awful no. because I find out Eugene has probably spent like, I, okay, so let, let me just say, I spent 12 out, like eight to 12 hours normally on the latter end every single day, except for Sunday range. And, you know, I've built other sorts of optimizations into my life. Mariah helps me with a bunch of stuff that I normally have responsibilities for doing the dishes or household chores. So I can just sit down and just be like in the zone. And then Eugene comes here and tells me that he has pretty much no. the same result just on nights and weekends. Bro, what the frick? How? No, man. I mean, there's number one and there's number two, right? And I'm pretty sure like, okay, I think from the leaderboard, it was pretty clear like two and below were all like pretty close together and you were kind of the front runner. So I don't think there's there's any need to like feel bad about yourself. You definitely paid off the time that you had. I did, Space Raccoon and I sort of do this thing after the due period ends for these live hacking events. For those of you that don't know what the due period is, when we're doing the live hacking events, there's a period of time where all the bugs submitted to the event, if there's a duplicate in the first week, something like that, then the bug, the bounty gets split between the, all the people that found the bug. So after the due period's over, you know, I, Eugene is one of the first people I message and be like, yo, bro, give me the tea. What kind of vulns did you find? And so I was like going into this chat with Space Raccoon feeling like, all right, this is pretty good. I've got some good bugs. And then Space Raccoon just like drops this crazy stuff on me that I've never seen. I didn't even see it in the whole scope. Like I didn't even think about taking this approach to the scope. And I don't know, man, Eugene, I've fangirled over you multiple times oh, in person thanks, so you know the vibe but yeah dude major respect for one putting having the self-restraint to put limits on your time when you're in a competition like this because i know that that is a major challenge but also having such awesome results and finding such crazy bugs so i wish we could talk more about them here i don't know you know maybe we can talk vaguely about them but especially since the topic is or the um the, the target is public knowledge we should probably keep stuff pretty vague yeah and I, I wanted to, I mean, I think we could go into like a whole entire episode about like, you know, motivation and like 
discipline or, or like how to manage your time with hacking and all, like because I, I think especially for people who work full-time jobs like myself and eugene like it's very that balance is like very challenging and i've talked to lots of other hackers about this this as well where especially as you start to like a lot of people transition from you know research and hacking into like a more like regular like full-time salary position the like emphasis on where to spend your time and where to focus your energy um, starts to fall off from hacking and more towards just like life and work and it becomes very difficult to like find the balance for like oh i want to like hack after work right like that is mm -hmm. like that's a lot of work right yeah so i was just curious like you see sort of both sides right like justin you talked about that like what you've seen with ron is that the diligence and like the just like going and checking everything all the way through is like really really important and simultaneously like if you're limited on time and energy and motivation and research and like all that right like where do you focus your time so that you can maximize like what you're hunting so i was curious eugene like what how do you like do some of that determination like how do you decide like oh i should hack on this specific thing that will have a higher likelihood of a five-figure bug than this specific thing, which might just waste eight hours of my time. Yeah. So I think one thing that I really focused on in the past year or so is more desktop binary exploitation. And I think that's really hard to do in, in certain bug bounty contexts, because unless you're really building like a browser exploit or something, most of the time, the targets you have, you don't really have a lot of insight to them. Sometimes they're like in the server. So, so that's why I focus a lot on the client side. So I focus on the desktop applications because you know, I have access to it. And the reason I do that also, because I also know that they tend not to be looked at as much by bug bounty hunters currently, you know, that might change in the future. But the second big reason is because it's something I want to learn, right? So it, I, for me, it, it's not just, you know, separating bug bounty and work, but also like the stuff I learned here that I practice here in bug bounty is actually very useful for my work, or it's going to give me skills that, you know, get me somewhere else in my workplace. So a lot of that motivation comes from this, like learning something new, applying a skill. And that gives me a chance to do that whenever I can in the, in the scope. Got it. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I have a very similar approach towards why I do a lot of mobile as well. Like, mm -hmm. That was a lot of the same reasoning as, you know, mobile is right in your hand. Anything that's happening in the app is happening in the app, right? So if you can figure out how to look at what the app is doing, decompile it, look at the code, then you know exactly what's going on there. And it's, it's up to you to, you know, sort of identify where they went wrong. Yeah, for sure. And I've been, you know, as normal, I'm a, a couple of years late to late, you know, behind you guys with this sort of thing. But I'm finding out recently, you know, with the IoT devices and stuff like that, that we've been hacking and just kind of scraping the surface with the desktop applications. So much fun scope there. So much. And I'll add this as well for any web hackers that are, you know, haven't taken the dive yet to kind of get some basic skills in mobile or IoT or desktop. There's a lot of like sort of tangential yeah, sort of tangentially related fields, you know, in these things. A lot of these things, I mean, definitely in mobile apps, they're using APIs. In desktop apps, sometimes there's even like a DOM that's getting rendered, you know, inside the desktop app. And so, I mean, it's pretty much a browser at that point, you know, yeah. and there's some weird stuff in there. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a browser and it's doing HTTP requests like everything else. And a lot of what you're seeing is a web interface anyway. So if you take those extra steps to, you know, figure out a way to bypass, you know, SSL pinning or or disable that or, or patch it or inject into the binary or whatever to get rid of your SSL pinning. There's a lot of scope there that's special. And there's also a lot of trade-offs between web and, you know, desktop applications of mobile apps, you know, via URI schemes and via Windows URI handlers and stuff like that. So definitely cool scope that you can check out as a web hunter without, you know, getting super deep into the binary exploitation. 
it, I think it's really funny to see how much of like this like new quote unquote like new technology ends up just like basically just being old technology that's repackaged, right? So it's like if people will be like, oh, how am I going to hack this like desktop app? And it's like, well, the desktop app's just doing like HTTP requests underneath it. So <laughs> it's just, it's all just HTTP at the end of the day. It's like, you know, or yeah. like, how am I going to hack this car? Right? Oh, well, the car's doing HTTP requests. So it's just yeah. HTTP requests and there's some backend API that controls it, right? So I think like if you try and reframe like you know, whatever you're approaching, if it, if it seems really challenging, try and reframe it in like a, something that you're familiar with already. Like if you're familiar right. with H web hacking, then does it make requests? See if you can like sniff those requests or look at those requests somehow and then go from there. And that'll probably lead you down a really profitable route. Yeah, for sure. All right, Eugene, I do have another question for you, man. You know, like I said before, keeping it as, as high level as we can to avoid, you know, any disclosures what what kind of takeaways do you have from this event what kind of stuff did you learn what kind of things will you be assimilating into your model for bug bounty after this event yeah i think the first one really was working on the binary exploitation side of things um, mm. so this was kind of like the first time i think that i've really put out reports that had binary mem memory corruption exploits oh, wow. on, on you know hack one like bug bounty programs because typically you know in this space like for memory corruption exploits you know you put them in like you send them to like Microsoft or like Chrome, you know, sure, which, sure. they're super familiar with what that is. And so it was definitely like, to me, interesting experience, like talking to triage is like, okay, I got this instruction pointer. This means I control execution flow. And like, <laughs> what, what does that mean in assembly? You know, like, and then when you start collaborating with people, like for, for a lot of people, I think for some people, it was kind of like a, a new thing, right? Mm -hmm. We are very familiar mm -hmm. with web exploits, web classes, but then when you're like, okay, what does a call to a pointer, which I control mean? And why is that? Why should you give me money for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when it becomes a bit more interesting. So this was definitely like a new takeaway because told me that this was very new, much a new space in, in many of these uh, mm. programs, mm. but it's also somewhere that you can have a lot of impact in just by exploring something that no one else is doing. Right. Nice. And the second thing I think was really kind of what Joel touched on, which is how a lot of what you see you know, when you see a desktop app or you see like a, like a black box, like reverse engineering thing, there are levels to how deep you have to go, right? So I think Justin and I, we, hmm, okay, we talk about this. <laughs> but like when you're reverse engineering yeah. a binary, right? You don't just go straight to assembly, right? There are some binaries where you have no choice. It's just going to be assembly. Maybe you can have some pseudocode. It's going to be bad, right? That's C++. That's, that's mm -hmm. all those like compiled binaries. But then you have those programs that came from an intermediate language representation, right? So you have C sharp, mm -hmm. you have Java right with mobile right. apps so then it kind of like looks a lot more closer to the, the original code right yeah. and that's a lot less um, intimidating to tackle and then of course then at the top level you have the scripting languages with python or node like electron like applications whereas you know it's kind of a home run right it's, you have the source code so so that was really important because i think for a lot of bug bounty when you start off is black box right you're just trying to hit a server you fuzz it to death and you try your best but as you start moving into this space, um, you do have to start incorporating some reverse engineering into it. Mm. And it doesn't have to be like, damn, I really need to know what assembly does, right? Uh, you can start from Java, you can start from C Sharp, you can start from Node, and it won't be as intimidating, but it'll build that intuition for finding bugs through code review, which I think is really mm. important. That's a great tip. And we did on the pre-H1407 event video, we did kind of talk a little bit about 
you know, dot peak and, and IL spy and those sort mm -hmm. of things about how to get some of these uh, intermediate languages, get these binaries back to these intermediate languages. That's definitely a big plus. And it, I know for me, it made it a lot easier to look at some of these binaries, a lot less intimidating. And yeah, just white box is a totally different beast in general. So for those of you that are looking to expand your techniques into a different area, you can definitely find some crazy stuff if you've got access to source code. So. Yeah. So you were mentioning that like writing the reports, like these types of reports is like kind of a very different experience. And I, I think I can relate to that a little bit with mobile reports, especially in the early days, like submitting mobile bugs. A lot of it with teams would just be like, oh, well, you have to be on the same network or the same device or like, you know, but yeah, these are still like security problems because like getting on someone's device isn't like a non, it's like a non like you can, that happens, right? So like, mm -hmm. they're, they're still like, you know, you still have to address the issue. And I think you frequently see with like newer spaces, like those like binary exploitation, like it's very hard for both the program and the triagers to like sort of grasp like why this is an issue, right? And you as the researchers sort of have to explain like, this is why this is an issue. Like, this is why you should pay me a bounty, right? So do you have any, well, for one, let me just say like triagers, you know, I, I know they get a lot of hate and like yeah. they have to understand like so many different things yeah. that like mm -hmm. you know it's honestly kind of impressive that they're able to like accurately like Absolutely. triage and like handle these things that like they may have never even dealt with before like what is a pc like you know like all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. so like do you have any advice on like how to write reports such that it can be understood easily by like the customer as well as the triager and also like show your impact in like the best way yeah so i kind of alluded to this but i think in the binary exploitation space, of course, like everyone would love to pop calc, right? And and just be done with it because that's clear as day. But when you're talking about like a life hacking environment event or, you know, even just a regular guy who doesn't have a lot of time on your hands, sometimes building a full exploit where you bypass like all of these memory protections doesn't make a lot of sense unless you're submitting it to like phone to own or like a browser exploitation, like bug money program. And, and so a lot of what you probably do have to do is script out your exploit in some way. So give like a, a simple like PowerShell or Python script that then pops the debugger and shows the the overwrite uh, happening. And that makes it a lot easier for a triager to do that instead of being like, okay, step one, have WinDBG and like, you know, attach it here. Right? <laughs> do it, you know, because WinDBG has like a, a CLI, you can just do that for them. So why not just put it all in a script and make it, you know, very easy. You know, you just have to run the script and you can then explain like, okay, this is what you're seeing on your screen and that's what it means. So that saves you a lot of time on the first few steps, which I think is where a lot of the frustration comes in because you're like, okay, I can't reproduce, like, how am I going to move on from here? And that makes it easier for triages and makes the whole process a lot more easy. Mm, for sure. Would you say that you automate your stuff from the beginning or do you, do you sort of like leave that to the end where like, okay, I'm ready to submit this. Let me craft a POC that's reproducible and not just, you know, I know how it works, but like it'll work every time yeah so i think it's kind of like the midway point so you know at the first few steps you, you discover maybe like the crash and then you're like okay then how do i exploit that and then when at that point that's when you start the automation when you start writing your scripts and stuff like that this is great this is exactly what we said when we were talking about automation in a previous <laughs> episode as well is that like in the beginning usually it's manual and that's like when you start to identify like dang this is a very tedious process i, I yeah. should find a, a better way to do this and then that's when automation starts coming in but it's nice to hear that you have sort of like a point where you're like okay i'm not gonna go automate the hell out of this because what's the point right i need to show a poc and move on you know mm -hmm. keep my time rolling keep my my bugs rolling keep focusing on new things like yeah absolutely it has to you know at the end of the day it's going to hit that same you know efficiency graph <laughs> the inflection point yeah. yeah and it's it'll be worthwhile but you got to find the right point for that for sure 
So yes, with the binary exploitation bugs, Eugene, you started this, you know, originally you were a web guy, like you said, and what, what kind of resources and trainings, because I know you've done quite a few, uh, provided the most value for you to be able to finding and being able to so intricately explain these bugs like you did in your report. Because I did peep that report and that was beautiful, man. PowerShell script you gave and then some of the other stuff. I mean, that was, that was really cool. So yeah, what kind of trainings got you to that place? And, you know, is it largely your own research or is there a training that really knocked out of the park? Yeah. So I am not sponsored in any way, but you know, I first started <laughs> out, yeah, I think everyone, like when you first look at for resources in this area, it's actually really difficult to find, like getting you on board because like you have like little like crack me's and you have little, like little CTF challenges that teach you like a buffer overflow, but it doesn't really like sink into your head. Like <laughs> understanding assembly, like takes a lot of time. And so I would say like at the start, like how I got into this space was through malware reverse engineering course, zero to automate it, which I think is like a fantastic, like malware reverse engineering course. Mm. But what I did was really focused on the RES, reverse engineering aspect of it. And a lot of it also had to do with kind of looking at patterns in assembly and kind of understanding what the assembly was doing. I did a little bit of that, but because I'm not like really into RE, I was more into the exploitation. I started moving to buffer overflows. So the really classic like core land, like from 10 years, 12 years ago, like blog <laughs> posts, they're still there. And it's still a great course to get you started on 32-bit. But then what really kind of like helped me get it was the uh, offensive security exploit development um, certification. So that's why I'm not sponsored. Like I know, like I blog about them a lot, but I really like this one in particular because it just made me get like what rock was like return oriented programming, which is kind of like one of the key skills in binary exploitation because it just drilled you in doing it. It gave you like a lot of materials, a lot of workshops, which I think might be a bit hard if you're just working on single blog posts, which is what I think mm. a lot of people are left with. So if you can find a good course for you that, that makes you sit down and do it for like months or like month and a half, I think that that would be super helpful. And after that, I think I became a lot more confident in understanding what I was supposed to do. Nice, man. Yeah, that's good stuff. Offensive security courses are, are always awesome. So I definitely have one of those on my list. As being self-employed, it's, it's a yeah. little bit more tricky because, you know, I don't have that giant training budget, government guys or, you know, you Silicon Valley guys. Let me check the training budget, open yeah. my bank account. <laughs> yeah, so I definitely got it. But, you know, at the end of the day, and I talk about this at Decent Pit with some of the people that I mentee, mentor, my mentees, <laughs> you know, investment in yourself with these courses and with, you know, just spending that extra time that you feel like you should spend hunting or something like that, learning about a new area can really give big dividends. So I should just write the check and go to the course, I think. <laughs> yeah, that, that's awesome to hear because I know, I mean, a lot of companies give training budgets and I know tons of people who just never use them, myself included, because it's just hard to find like a training that seems like this would be something that I'd like to, you know, go spend, you know, a weekend or a week or whatever, like learning and just like in a room instead of just like, you know, hacking on my own. But like right. finding those like really awesome courses that'll teach you a lot and be high, super high value, like ask your friends, ask the community, like mm. ask people like Space Raccoon right? like, yeah. and, and you'll definitely, you'll hear about what the, what the good courses are. Yeah, Eugene is not that guy, I think. Eugene just goes and no. gets every single course he's like, <laughs> I feel like you've done a decent amount of certifications, right? Yeah, and I think like everyone kind of learns differently, right? So I think for me, like I do like having that kind of full service, like, you know, do this yeah. whole huge book and then you spend like weeks or a month, right? And and you kind of walk out there like, okay, I get it now, you know, I've been enlightened. Um, but other people, you know, like yeah. they, they do like single blog posts or whatever. So whatever works for you, I think is, is quite important, right? 
Yeah, for sure. I, you should have seen Eugene's face when he said this whole big book. There was a huge smile like, oh, I love this giant book that I've got to get through. Yeah, you can see that's, the stack of books behind him. Too. That's crazy, man. <laughs> so when you went into like binary exploitation and, and those courses, would you say you had like a, a lot of, I don't know what the re- relevant experience, would it be like source code review, like AppSec? Like what would you say like helped the most in terms of like background knowledge leading into that? Yeah, I think the key thing with binary exploitation is knowledge of assembly. <laughs> so I think reverse engineering even a little bit in the binary space, not just you know in source code, is super helpful. And I understand like that's <laughs> that's not fun for many people. It wasn't fun for me at all. But I think what I got was kind of like it's almost like learning any language because you spend enough time with it, reading it over and over again. Somehow it starts making sense after a while. So so really having that patience. But I think going to binary exploitation, I think. That, that knowledge of assembly is actually very important. Mm, very cool. Awesome. Okay, so we're getting in the 40-minute range here. So I want to try to bring it around to some technical some technical content. I only have two things on the list today that I wanted to talk about um, that we didn't already talk about in the pre-video. And one of those is Responder. And this is, you know, talk about sort of cross-discipline experience. This is a really cool technique that I think is more and more relevant as you start looking at, at binary applications or, or desktop applications, where I had a, um, I had a buddy who had a, essentially a UNC path injection. Mm-hmm. He could inject user input into the application and the application would reach out to a specific file path and do something with that. And he's like, I can't really figure out any way to do this. And you know, messages me about it. And I'm like, dude. And he's a younger guy, extremely talented hacker. Hopefully we'll have him on the show at some point. But, you know, from my two years of experience being a consultant, you know, and doing network penetration testing, Responder was a network pen tester's best friend. So I was like, dude, just like spin up a Responder instance and on your server and it'll reach out. And yeah, and like five minutes after he sent me that message, we had uh, NTLM hashes. And so that's a great way to show impact if you've got these sort of uh, UNC path injections, kind of what I'm calling it, kind of like a path SSRF on a desktop app. I think UNC responder stuff, NTOM hashes is, is interesting, actually, because yeah. I literally just saw like hours ago on uh, Twitter, I think Albino Wax posted about like an old browser bug that he had that led to NTOM hashes being leaked. I, I think that's that's interesting because I, I feel like for certain programs, like I, I'm not sure if Microsoft does that, but they, they tend not to like that. But in a network pen test, you know, leaking yeah. an NTOM hash might be useful. So, so I think it'll be interesting to see where that kind of shakes out in the bug bounty space as well. Yeah. Because- yeah. It definitely has limited actual exploitation potential. You know, it might, your CVSS might get put to adjacent network or something like that. Yeah. In my opinion, it's still a confidentiality leak for sure. And I think it definitely has, you know, integrity aspects to it as well. If you put your CVSS to adjacent network, especially in the context of desktop applications, you know, if we're talking about a web bug that's doing this, then that could be an interesting thing as well if it's a server. But, you know, having that user's NTLM hash and then being able to, you know, either pass it around or be able to crack it offline. Also, you're leaking authentication or username information. So that's another confidentiality piece. So it's just a way to get your get a little bit more impact on something like that. Obviously, you normally when something's looking to read a file, you want to try to give it whatever file type it's looking for and try to see how it's parsing the file that you now control as input, because there's a lot of other bugs that can be found there. I know one of the first live hacking events I ever went to, one of my most respected hackers, Andre, uh, OXACB, like had a phenomenal bug that he submitted where, you know, sort of like a second order or third order leak like that, where something was reaching out to a file, then it parsed the file, then it would send a request to here. 
and he ended up getting like super admin creds <laughs> and and just like pwned everything because of he kind of went down that path to build out the file format that they were looking for wow and definitely popped some crazy results yeah this is awesome look i just looked up that tweet that you're talking about and it's so funny because it's like almost exactly what we were talking about where and it's his like poc is like calc dot <laughs> dot lnk or whatever like you know he's popping calc of course awesome. but it's i think it's just another one of those cases where you have to like it's all about like framing it right yeah. and like this is probably my biggest gripe with cvss is there are definitely cases where it does capture but doesn't capture like the whole picture you know what i mean and yeah. there's like cvss extended and all that kind of stuff but oftentimes i find it more useful for if the company were to just think about it from just impact perspective right okay you have users who use your browser and download stuff all the time if they click this file that they've downloaded through your browser and it does something unexpected through your browser, then that's bad, right? Like that doesn't really matter like where it's happening. Like that impact is, you know, that's a highly plausible scenario. So it's really hard to like quantify that into the numbers. And it's really nice to see like over time that it's gotten easier yeah. where like in the beginning you would like email a company and hope they didn't sue you or like take you to jail. <laughs> and now it's like <laughs> you email them and you, they, you hope that they give you a, a good bounty, you know, like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I looked up that, that tweet and Here's another really great technical tip for you. Just set your tweet notifications on Albino Wax, uh, James Kettle, because like literally anything that that guy tweets is like straight up gold. So major respect for him. But this is another interesting piece that I, I'm a little bit more of a, of a Unix guy. So obviously familiar with the way that, you know, symbolic links and stuff like that uh, work and the way that you can manipulate them in the context of these vulnerabilities. But one of the other things that popped up recently that I, I learned is, you know, these Windows shortcut link files. And he mentions it in this tweet, like you were saying. And I think there's that's a really interesting scope and a really interesting area where you can play around with some some tricky behaviors there. Have you guys ever done anything fun with a Windows shortcut? I, I know somebody had something recently, but yeah, I mean, Back in elementary school, I was making Windows shortcuts to like open the CD tray, oh you know, my like, gosh. A, like a real hacker, you know? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you Everybody gave me some ideas. CD tray is still. Yeah. I think it's a little bit hard to get them to work sometimes, but I know one of the, without, like I said, without getting, giving away too many details, there was some interesting stuff that popped up at the event with these. So definitely something to keep in mind. I, I definitely don't have that sort of perspective a lot of time with Windows because, you know, I'm less familiar with the way that Windows parses files and stuff like that, but Definitely cool stuff there. Okay, so the, the other thing that I had here, and this one made me feel like an idiot because I'm gonna tell you the story. I get to the event, right? And when you first when you first get to these live hacking events, you know, you're seeing all your friends, all these names that you have, you know, from online, and you're like hugging everybody and saying, How's it going? What'd you find? You know, <laughs> catching up. You know, we get there, freaking uh, inhibitor 181 Cosman, and I like start arguing about this C serve. And, and that we both found, right? <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm like, dude, like, this is not a, anyway, I, without giving away too many details, this is really hard to talk about this stuff without giving away too many details. But of course, Cosman was right, being, being the, uh, the, the G that he is. Oh, and, he's always uh, right. Yeah, dude. And what I would like to convey here is that, and I knew that this was possible. I knew that you could represent, this is the, this is the, the rub here. I knew that you could represent JSON objects nested in XWW form URL encoded format, but apparently I was not doing it right. And it cost me some serious bugs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, apparently 
just kind of put the little square brackets in there, like almost like you're assigning a variable in JavaScript and you can do, you know, represent pretty complex types in nested objects within XWW form URL encoded. And I think maybe when I tried it a couple times, it like didn't work or I like got some weird error or something. So I'm like, ah, this is probably not something that's very common, but it's something that I stopped testing for, you know, in converting JSON requests to X form URL encoded for CSERF purposes. And apparently it's still out there and my wallet is feeling the burn from it. So <laughs> definitely something to keep in mind. So, so just to clarify, like, you're kind of turning these like uh, JSON like objects and then you're pulling out the keys and then you're putting them in the uh, the key of the, uh, within the square brackets, right? That's, that's what you're doing. Yeah, that's what okay. I'm, that's what I'm doing. And I think you can nest it too. Yeah. And, and you can kind of do it further, further down and, you know, keep on doing square bracket and then square bracket and stuff like that. So for some reason, you know, it makes so much sense. And I've definitely seen it before on some of these older, you know, applications, but definitely something to keep in mind. And, and for those of you that don't try to convert JSON to X form URL encoded, that, that is very common. I've heard a lot of people when, when we were having this discussion, when Cosmo and I were having this discussion, there were a couple of people around that were like, you're doing what? Yeah, it's a JSON, you know? No. And I'm, I'm like, guys, if you just convert JSON to X form URL encoded, there's CSERFs all over the place still. Mm. And uh, nowadays you have to have some additional pieces to get it to work with same site lacks, but they're almost always there. So keep mm. looking for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like the first time I saw like that kind of syntax, I was like doing some PHP work or something and I saw in, like a URL parameter. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's a really weird syntax, like you mm. said, because it's like, it's almost like you're writing code. Yeah. But but it's like it just like parameter. It's just like the format of the parameter. Mm. And it comes like on the back end, it just comes through as like either an object or an array or like, you yeah. know, it parses it out automatically, usually through the web framework. Yeah, I've seen it on Rails sure. actually. Rails does that. Yeah. Oh, Rails yeah. does it. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I, I you know, despite all the things written in Rails, I have not actually spent very much time hacking Rails. So I definitely I definitely ought to look that up. I mean if you get lab and Shopify and a couple other things all have and hacker one and hacker one. <clears throat> yeah. So that's definitely cool. Did either of you guys have any, any technical takeaways you wanted to, to share from the event or is that pretty much wrap it up for us? I feel like I've thrown them out throughout the yeah, throughout, yeah. traditional Joel for style, you, Joel. <laughs> you just throw them out there as they pop up. Well, space raccoon. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah. Thanks for Appreciate having me. you as always. And yeah. Thanks for thanks for listening, everyone. Peace. Yeah, this this was a great conversation. Hold, before we go, oh. uh, Space Raccoon, is there any social handles, websites, anything you want to shout out nice. that people can fo follow you and find you? Yeah, uh, so I have a blog, spaceraccoon.dev, D-E-V. That's where I put most of my stuff. Um, I do have a Twitter. That's Space Raccoon Sec, because someone already took Space Raccoon for some reason. <laughs> so you can find me that way. Awesome. All right, well, you heard it here first, spaceraccoon.dev, spaceraccoonsec on Twitter. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Yep. Sounds good. See you, everybody. See ya. Peace.